Well, like I told you last week, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. I can't help myself. And, and have pity for me because I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So I, I was led astray when I was quite young. But I, I have some memorabilia, thanks to the kindness of a good friend. I have some memorabilia in my office at home. But I have one piece that, to me, is worth more than all the other pieces combined because there's some scribbling on this particular helmet. Because, see, we've been blessed through the years, well, not necessarily recently, but back in the old days, we were blessed in Dallas with a lot of great, great football players. And we liked a lot of players. I mean, I liked Aikman. I liked Emmett Smith. I liked Tony Romo, Jason Witten. But if, if any of you are my age and you grew up in Texas like I did, chances are you know there was one player we didn't just like. We loved him. He was like a member of our family. And even so to this day. I still remember March 31st, 1980. I was associate pastor of a church in Fort Worth. That was the day when he surprisingly retired. He had too many concussions. And he shocked the Metroplex with his, with his retirement. And I, I was making visits that day, and I still remember making several visits on grown men. One was an elderly man. I still remember when I went to his house, he was crying. I mean, this was like a devastating day in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Tears streamed down his cheeks as he said to me, but there'll never be another Roger. We, it was like we knew him on a first-name basis. Roger Staubach. Graduated from Naval Academy, won the Heisman Trophy there, but instead of going to a lucrative pro contract, went, for, went to Vietnam for four years and served his country. Well, that's a great thing, and many young men and women have done something like that, but if you're a pro athlete and you take the first four years after graduation and you spend them in the military, it's almost as if your career is over before it ever got started because in the prime formative years, instead of drawing the big bucks, you've been in a military uniform. But when Roger came back to the United States after he got, got through with his tour of duty and his tour in Vietnam, he joined the Cowboys as a 27-year-old rookie. And after that, well, for those of you who know NFL lore, history was made. Roger became the starting, starting quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, had them in the playoffs every year except for one. And then on top of that, he led them to four NFC titles and two Super Bowl championships. We called him Captain America in Dallas, and I guess a lot of the country did, because Roger was squeaky clean. Not only had he served his country, he was a married man with kids, and he was a Christian, and he lived out his Christian faith. And so he sort of became the quintessential squeaky clean athlete. And he got asked a lot of questions about that. And in one particular interview with Phyllis George on NFL Today many years ago, he said something that still gets played. I'll still see it on ESPN and NFL Network. He was being asked about his life by Phyllis George. And his unsuspecting wife, who had no idea what Roger was about to say, sat there embarrassed as Roger said this. He said, everybody compares me to Joe Namath. They think about him as a swinging bachelor, you know. He said, but I enjoy sex as much as Joe Namath. Only I'd do it with one girl. His wife, poor Mary Ann, had no idea he was going to say that and was totally freaked out. But I find it interesting, don't you, that after all these years, they still play that interview with Roger Staubach, Captain America. But over time, we came up with a different nickname for Roger because you see the thing about Staubach, no matter how far the Cowboys got behind, we always had the belief that if we could get the ball back in Roger's hands at the end, we could win. And 23 times, I think, if I remember right, in fourth quarters of games, Roger Staubach, including the Hail Mary in Minnesota in 1975, 23 times Roger brought the Cowboys back. And he became known around, at least around the Metroplex, as Captain Comeback. Well, that's all history. You know, it's all sports history. 
But last year, the NFL Network did a biopic on Roger. They did an hour-long bio story of Roger Staubach. And one of the things that I found interesting was they didn't just cover his football career. They covered his life since he was in football. Because after he, filled, after he finished his football career, he started a real estate company, a very successful one in Dallas, I might add, with 30 offices around the United States, Canada, and Mexico. When he sold it in 2007, he sold it for $600 million. Wow. But that wasn't what got my attention. Because after a while, people who perhaps had played with Roger and other people talked about how Roger had been gracious to them in life after that. Charlie Waters, who was a defensive back for the Cowboys, you know, talked about how that when he was coaching at Oregon in the middle, as a middle-aged man, his 18-year-old son died in the middle of the night. And Charlie said, I was brain dead. And he said, I had to move back to Dallas. He said, I had no idea what I would do. And he said, Roger called me and said, hey, you've got a job. You don't even have to come to the office. You've got a job and a salary. And as Charlie Waters cried, tears streamed down his face. He said, he saved my life. Thomas Hollywood Henderson is the best weak side linebacker I ever saw in my life. But he blew up his career with drugs and cocaine. And Henderson said, as he gave this interview as a much older man, he said, I was in a rehab center and I was thinking about taking my life. And he said in a phone call with Roger Staubach, he said, Roger said, Thomas, drugs brought you down, but you're a good guy. He said, I didn't think anybody thought I was a good guy at that moment. And as the aging linebacker wept, he said, that man saved my life. That's when it hit me. You know, we live in an age, especially in sports, where there are me players. They don't care as long as they get their stats that lead to getting their contracts. They don't care so much. And then there are team players who care a whole lot about winning. But there's, there's, another, there's another echelon. There's another strata of great football players, baseball players. There are those for whom it's not enough to just win. They want to bring people with them. And what I saw about Roger was it wasn't just a football thing. That was the thing about him in life. He had a desire. He had a passion to bring people back when they were behind. Well, you and I know we didn't come here to talk about sports today. We came here to talk about something far more important. Let me ask you a question. What do you think, what do you think is a real Christian, a Christ follower? Let me, let me go another direction. Did you know that the Bible tells us in heaven there are going to be stars? I'm not talking about the ones that shimmer at night. I'm talking about in heaven there are going to be people who are standout people. They're going to be, they're going to be the stars of heaven. Well, who do you think they would be? Do you think the stars of heaven would be like, well, mark people that know the Bible from cover to cover? You know, people that study the Bible. It's a good thing to study the Bible. But that's not what the Bible says. He said, well, Mike, I think it's people who's gone, who've gone to church for like 50 years and they've never missed and they have attendance badges all the way down for perfect attendance. Those are going to be the stars of heaven. Yeah. Let me read to you. If you want to know who's going to be the stars in heaven, all you got to do is go to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 1, because the Bible tells us those who turn, that's an interesting verb right there. Just hold on to it. Those who turn many to righteousness will glitter like the stars forever. See, the people who are going to be the stars in heaven will be the people who help other people. When they're going down the wrong road, turn around and get on the right road. Those will be the stars of heaven. Let me read another verse to you. Eventually we'll get to Luke chapter 10, but I want to read to you what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. And we're going to slow this down because I want us to make sure that we really get the impact of what God is saying to us. The first word is brethren. That's not a gender term. It just means family members. 
Um, I'm always excited when people who, had, who come to New Spring, when people come and they don't necessarily believe in God or, or they're not sure what they believe or they're just exploring. I'm very thankful for that. You guys are who get, you're what gets me up in the morning. But in this particular verse, God is talking to people who are believers in Jesus Christ, family members. If someone is overtaken in a trespass, now the word overtaken there is an interesting word because it means surprised. For instance, if you're ever watching an animal channel and you're watching, you know, a gazelle out in the meadow and all of a sudden you see this predatory cat jump on top of the back of this gazelle, that's, that's exactly what that word means. The Bible says family members. If somebody is surprised by a fault or a trespass, now let, let, me, let me tell you what I think. See, when somebody we know, either in church or we hear about, when they blow up their lives, what's the question that we want to ask? It's like, what were they thinking? Or how many of us have said something like this? Didn't they see that coming? Now, it makes perfect sense to us that what they were into was not healthy. But I want to tell you what I've learned from pastoring 38 years. The answer to that question for a lot of people is no, they didn't see it coming. I mean, they knew they were, they were doing some things that weren't wise, but they were surprised to find out that what they did was leading to a devastating outcome. I'm going to tell you what I believe. I spent 38 years pastoring. I've heard a lot of people tell me stories of sad and embarrassing things. I just don't think anybody gets up in the morning and says, gee, I think I'll blow up my life. So the Bible says, okay, family members, when somebody gets into something bad and they're surprised, Scripture says, you who are spiritual, go on Facebook and tell everybody about it. <laughs> no, not knocking Facebook. It just says, you who are spiritual, restore that person. Now, again, this is an interesting word. Years ago, when I was really, really young, I broke my leg. I stepped in a hole playing touch football, and I broke it badly. It wasn't just cross. I broke it diagonally, dislocated. Fortunately, I didn't have to have surgery. I was heavier than I am now. And I remember telling the doctor I was talking to after several visits, I said, well, I better lose some weight or I'll break that bone in the same place. And he said, Mark, you may break it above that spot and you may break it below that spot, but you'll never break it in the same place again. And he explained ossification to me and how that, that, how that God has put a natural healing agent in us to where that part of the bone would be stronger than any other part of the bone. And that's, that's the exact word that God is using here. He's saying, look, family members, if somebody you know is surprised by getting themselves into a disaster, you who are spiritual, help them come back. And who knows if they won't be healthier there than any other place. Well, you know, let me go someplace right now, and this is really important. I know that last night was probably a late night for many of us with Halloween but, and, the, and the game. So, you know, if there's any glaze this morning, let, let's let that slip off because I need to go to a very important place. In 21st century postmodern America, when someone gets into trouble, oftentimes what we say is, I don't judge, but hear me real clearly. It is just as much judging to say that someone's conduct is acceptable and all right as it is to say that it's wrong. If I see someone stealing and I say that's wrong, I'm not judging. 
I mean, if, if it were simply my judgment, then I would not have the authority to make that judgment. But you understand if I see somebody stealing and I tell them, hey, that's okay, well, that would be a judgment too. For some reason, we've gotten this idea that if we tell something, something, somebody something is wrong, that's judging. So consequently, not judging is telling them that it's okay. You and I have not the authority to do either one. We're not God. I can't tell you that your conduct is okay unless God says it's okay. I can't tell you that your conduct is wrong unless God says it's wrong. So the opposite of judging is not telling someone what they're doing is okay. The opposite of judging is bringing somebody back when they're doing things that are harmful to themselves. That's what the Bible is saying. If you see somebody surprised in a thought, you who are spiritual, help that person back. That's the opposite of judging. Well, with that in mind, I want to take you to Luke chapter 10 because our story here is one that you guys know probably pretty well. A lot of you may even know it better than I do. It's a story that Jesus told. And in Jesus' story, he just simply says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, if, if I say to you the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, that might, like, that might sound like the road from Wichita to Augusta. It's about the same distance. It's about 17 miles. But the road from Wichita to Augusta and the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is totally different because you see, and it's still hard for me to wrap my mind around this, in just 17 miles, the road drops 3,500 feet in elevation. So consequently, it was a narrow road filled with switchbacks. I was reading a sermon of Dr. Martin Luther King some time ago, and Dr. King said this. He said, I remember when Mrs. King and I first were in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. As soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. It's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it became known as the bloody pass. So, with Dr. King's words in our mind, let's just hear Jesus' story. Jesus said, a guy. I'm thankful that he didn't say his name because it could be anybody. It could be me, it could be you, it could be my friends, your friends, it could be my kids, it could be your kids, it could be my wife, it could be your wife, it could be your husband. Jesus said, a guy was just on this dangerous road. Let me stop quickly. Anybody you know right now on a dangerous road? Nothing's happened to them yet, but they're on a dangerous road. Well, when's the time to tell somebody they're on a dangerous road? You say, I don't judge. Wait a minute. If you love that person, the opposite of judging is not failing to tell them they're on a dangerous road. The opposite of judging is helping them back. So if you know somebody on a dangerous road today, lovingly tell them they're on a dangerous road. Well, anyway, it was too late for the guy in Jesus' story because the Bible tells us that a gang came by and they did four things to him. Now, here's the thing. The likelihood of you and me coming literally upon someone who's been beaten up by a gang is pretty slim. Some of you are in the medical community, so you have a higher likelihood than, than the rest of us would have. But for most of us, the, the, the person, the ambushed person that we're going to meet hasn't been ambushed physically. For most of us, 99.9% .9 of the time, the person who is lying bruised and broken in our road is ambushed emotionally. We're going to find people whom life is wrecked emotionally. Now, with that in mind, I'd like for you to look at the four actions of the thieves that Jesus talked about, and I'd like for you to make an emotional application of each one of these, because I think you'll find it meaningful. 
Notice that the first thing that the thieves did was they stripped the man of his clothes. Now, when I think about that, I think about lost dignity. Because when you think about clothes, clothes are, are dignity. If you ever have a bad dream that you're up giving a talk in front of everybody in your underwear? Why is it you wake up in a cold sweat? Because it would blow up your dignity to be in a situation like that, right? So consequently, when they stripped him of his clothes, they took his dignity away from him. Now, I'm guessing not, it's not going to take very long before somebody's image is going to begin to crystallize in your mind. Who do you know that life is stripped of their dignity? I've met people who've lost their jobs, lost their careers, and I've watched them go from very confident men and women to very fearful men and women because the loss of a job stripped them of their dignity. I have a good friend right now whose marriage is ending, and this friend of mine has done everything possible to keep the marriage going, and I just see the face and the, just the stripped dignity. Sometimes people can do something that's embarrassing and they will lose their dignity. Who do you know in your life who life has stripped them of their dignity. And then the second thing that I notice is they beat him, which means they hurt him. And in this hurting that they did, they created both bruises and open wounds. A bruise is a wound that's below the surface. I don't, I don't counsel as much as I used to, but I was always shocked back when I was counseling that somebody would walk into my office perfectly dressed, perfectly coiffed, wearing fine clothes. You could tell from the clothes they were wearing they probably made a very nice income. From the car in the parking lot, they had a very successful job. This person could walk right past you on the street, and you would think she has absolutely nothing wrong with her. And yet, when that person would sit down in my office and begin to tell me all the hurt in the life, I could tell this person was very bruised. They'd been beaten up, but it was below the surface. And then there are people that have open wounds. They've just been hurt so badly that it's open for anybody to see. So not only did the thieves strip him, they removed his dignity. Not only did they hurt him, the third thing they did was they abandoned him. And guys, I'm not going to speak for you, but I want to tell you, I've had life do all these things to me at some point. I've had life take away dignity. I've had life hurt me, both bruises and open wounds. But I don't think there's anything that's as painful as rejection or being left alone. You know, after these thieves did their work on this guy, they left him. They just left him like a sack of garbage in the road. Who do you know, as I said, whose face is beginning to come to mind? Stripped of dignity, hurt, abandoned. But then finally, according to Jesus, they left him dying. And by that I mean this guy had a sense that he had no future. Can I get on my soapbox? And I promise I'll get right off after this. But... One of the things that makes me angriest is to hear a parent scream at a kid in an open place, and what the parent screams to the kid adds up to you don't have any future. You're always going to be a loser. You're never going to be a success. You're never going to get a good job. You're, all, you're always stupid. Parents, let me just tell you this, and grandparents, the worst thing you can ever say to a kid is the kid doesn't have a future. When you tell a kid he doesn't have a future, you hit him in the solar plexus of life. So that's what happened to this guy. Lost his dignity, wounded, abandoned, left alone, and beyond that he had no sense of having any future. But let's wait for a moment because as Jesus tells the story, it looks like there's going to be an uptick in the situation. Jesus said, a priest came down that same road, verse 31. And when he saw the man, though, he passed by on the other side. Well, a priest has a responsibility of representing people to God. And there's this wounded man there. 
And according to Dr. King, this road was so narrow that it was almost as if he had to step over the man in order to get to the other side of the road. So as Jesus is telling this story, you know, you hear the crowd go, oh, good, a priest. Oh, no. And then Jesus said, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. Well, Levite's a guy who had the responsibility of taking care of the sacred implements of the temple. But he saw him. And then he stepped over him and went by to the other side. Now, New Spring, heads up for a moment. You know what? If we're not careful, we'll, we'll look at what they did and we'll see it as a neutral. In other words, it wasn't a negative. They didn't hurt him, but it wasn't a positive. They didn't help him. So consequently, stepping over him and not doing anything was a neutral. I want you to know that what these two men did was a cosmic crime against heaven. Because it was God who put this man in their path. And not only that, God brought two guys. I mean, two guys would have had an easier time helping than one guy. God brought two people there to help him. And stepping over him and avoiding him was not a neutral thing. Oh, by the way, we don't have time to help, and this is a scary place, and something could happen to us. By stepping over him, they committed a cosmic crime. I never thought about this until I was working on this talk. You guys are really bright. Who would be the source? Who would be the news source about these two individuals, who they were and what they did? There's only one, there's only one possibility. The only source is the wounded man. He's the only one who would have known about the priest and the Levite. Was he lying there on the road helpless, hoping that somebody would come along, and then his eyes brightened as he saw a priest? And thought, wow, the priest will help me. But from the ground, he saw the priest swing his leg over and walk to the other side of the road. And then he saw the Levite. He knew who he was by his dress. And he said, this man will help me. But he swung his foot across and he went to the other side. Hey, guys, I don't want to talk about this today too long. But you know what? There have been a lot of people who don't follow Jesus. They've been hurt by the world. And yet the very Christ followers who could have spoken grace and comfort and peace and help into their lives, swung their feet over and walked to the other side. And many of those people have the idea that that's who Jesus is because they've dealt with church people. Well, I'm glad New Spring's not that way. We exist for people who aren't here yet. Well, let's go on. Jesus is continuing his story. In verse 33, he said, but a Samaritan. Now, time has sanitized this one. We've had 2,000 years since Jesus' story, and this story has been with us so much that Samaritan is an honored term. I mean, somebody who's helpful is a good Samaritan. We have good Samaritan hospitals. We have good Samaritan laws. One of the finest organizations in the world is Samaritan's Purse that's headed by Franklin Graham. So when we hear a Samaritan is coming by, it's like, oh, good, finally. But that wouldn't have been how Jesus' audience would have heard this. You know, our faith began in the Jewish world. And so, so much of what we read is the culture from the times. And so, Jesus' audience primarily is Jewish. And there's an issue there, a racial issue. I know that you didn't come here to hear a history lesson, but what happened was during the days of King Solomon, we always think of Israel as being one nation, but Israel split. 
There was the northern kingdom, which became known as Israel or Samaria, and there was the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. It's why when you're reading in the Old Testament, it looks like there are two kings on the throne at the same time. That's because Samaria has a king and Judah has a king. And they're all Jewish people, but because of a split in the family of Solomon and with his kingdom, they're two nations. And the northern kingdom, Samaria never did really worship God. They'd always been idolatrous from the beginning. But from time to time, um, the two nations would be judged by God. And the northern kingdom, Samaria, went into captivity far earlier than the southern kingdom did. And they never really came out of captivity. And they did the one thing. It doesn't mean anything in our Western world, but if you go back to the first century, it meant a whole lot. They did the one thing that was, was unacceptable. They intermarried. And so that became a racial problem in this culture. And Samaritans were considered outcasts. In fact, when Jesus' audience wanted to rip him one day, they said, we were right to say that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. The two worst things they could say about him was, you know, you have a demon and oh, by the way, you're a Samaritan. So Jesus is telling a story. And he's saying, a Samaritan comes by. But notice that this Samaritan treats the man far differently than the priest and Levite. Let's read it. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. He said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense that you may have. Okay, let's go to work. As I said a moment ago, the chances are you probably aren't going to meet someone who's been physically ambushed. You're going to meet someone who's been emotionally ambushed. So when we looked at what the thieves did and we gave it an emotional application, let's look now at what the Good Samaritan did, and let's do the same thing with his actions. And I think you're going to see they make all the sense in the world. Notice, according to Jesus, that the first thing that the Samaritan did was, instead of going to the other side of the road, he came where the man was. Hey, guys, if you want to bring people back when they're behind, go to where they are. It's so easy when we've been blessed and we're in a good situation to see someone else blow up their lives and we'll say, that would never happen to me. But has it crossed our minds that that doesn't make us superior? That just makes us blessed. You say, my husband would never leave me. Well, great. But how would you feel if he did? You say, well, my kids would never behave that way. Maybe not. But how would you feel if they did? You say, Mark, I've taken good care of my body, and I don't, I don't smoke, and, and I'm careful about how I eat, and I exercise really carefully, and I, I would never get a diagnosis like that, but, but what if you did? See, see what I mean? The first thing that the Samaritan did was he went where he was. The second thing that he did was he had compassion. He didn't just go to him and say, how would I feel if this happened to me? He had compassion. And here's, listen, here's the great manifestation of that compassion. When the Samaritan stood there over that wounded man, he was well cognizant of the reality that if the roles are reversed, that man would not stop for him. See, that takes the, well, he doesn't deserve it out of the, 
out of the picture, doesn't it? The third thing that he did, and I find this really interesting, is he did something. He didn't just empathize. We're pretty good at that in 21st century America. He didn't just empathize. He did something. He bandaged up his wounds and he poured in oil, which would have been an ointment. He poured in wine, which would have been an antiseptic. Number four, the fourth thing that he did was he sacrificed for him. The donkey was there to speed him up in this dangerous place and to be there for his comfort. But instead of using the donkey himself, he put the wounded man on the donkey and he walked. He sacrificed. Let's let's, let's go back through those again in case we're losing them. Number one, he went to where he was. Number two, he had compassion. Number three, he did something. Number four, he sacrificed. And number five, he took responsibility to the extent that it was possible. He took him to an inn, put out two silver coins, and said, I've got to go. You see, here's the thing. When you help somebody, you can't be with them 24-7. You do have to get on with your life. And there's a point at which you can't do what you, you're, you're limited as to what you can do. And that's what happened with the Samaritan. But at least he went to the limit. He did what he could do to take responsibility for this man's situation. Well, I got five minutes. As an epilogue to the message... Do you ever see somebody do something in the Bible or maybe in life, and you wonder why? Why? What was it that caused the Samaritan to do what he did? I've wondered about that through the years. This is an extraordinary book. This is God's Word. And let me just tell you, after spending a lifetime in it, if you let it, it will explain itself. Now, the explanation for something can be, you know, many pages removed, but if you keep looking long enough, you'll find an explanation for just about everything. In my private devotions the other day, I read Second Chronicles. And what I read in Second Chronicles made me know, I know exactly why the Good Samaritan stopped now. And again, I know you didn't come to hear a history lesson, but let me give you a little background. Um, as I said a few moments ago, the two kingdoms divided, Israel and Judah. And I don't think they ever really got into wars with each other very often because they were all Jewish people. They were brothers. But from time to time, they would get into, they would get into alliances, and because they got into convoluted alliances, they'd wind up fighting each other. And that happened. And the Samaritans kind of, I guess in the bloodlust of the battle, the Samaritans kind of lost sight of what was going on. They wound up slaughtering 120,000 men of Judah. That's a lot of men. I mean, you know, that's almost two and a half times what we lost in Vietnam. And on top of that, they did something far worse. The Samaritans took a bunch of the women and children captive, and a lot of them were taken out of their houses so fast they were unclothed. I said, Mark, what does that have to do? Let me just read something to you. In Second Chronicles 28, when all these soldiers were taking back all these captives to Samaria, a prophet of the Lord named Odin was there in Samaria when the army of Israel returned home. He went out to meet them and said, all heaven is disturbed. And now you're planning to make slaves of these people from Judah and Jerusalem. What about your own sins against the Lord your God? Then some of the leaders of Israel confronted the soldiers returning from battle. You must not bring the prisoners here, they declared. I love this line. We cannot afford to add to our sins and guilt. Our guilt is already great. So the warriors released the prisoners and handed over the plunder, look at this, and distributed clothes to the prisoners who were naked. Remember, these were Samaritans taking care of their Jewish relatives. 
They distributed clothes to the prisoners who were naked. They dressed their wounds with olive oil. Click. They put those who were weak on donkeys. Another click. So you're into the mind now of the Good Samaritan. He sees that man lying on the road, and history comes to his mind. He remembers this story, that once his people had the upper hand, and they were just about to destroy their fellow man, but God said, you can't afford to add to your guilt. Think about the goodness that God has brought about in your life. And that's when he stopped to help the man. You know, strange, isn't it? We can see someone hurt in life, and we can pick that moment to become self-righteous. They should have known better. Didn't they see it coming? And God is leaning over the parapets of heaven saying, but what about your own sins? What about the fact that we've received the grace of God and God has been good to us? See, if God has been good to us, it doesn't mean we're superior. It just means we're well positioned to help bring people back when they fail. May God help us to be a generation of men and women who, like Roger, are captains come back. It's not enough. We're not out just to make stats so we can get the great contracts. And we're not just team players. We're out looking for people to bring back when they've been ambushed in life. May God bless you. Thanks for being here today.